Well, folks, here we are. It's uh, November 5th, two days after the U.S. election. They're still counting. Uh, It is, and it could be a very, very long election, but we want to get into the whole issue of why, yet again, uh, this vote was so misunderstood and so misread, particularly south of the border. So we've turned to our friend and a person who knows a lot about this, Daryl Bricker, CEO of Public Affairs, Ipsos. So let's talk about the polling. Uh, I know your own polling here uh, raised some very interesting issues. Canadians still seem to think that an electing a Biden would be a much better thing for Canada than electing a Trump in spite of what we know about energy and pipelines and the need for us to sell energy to these people who have become self-sufficient. Right. Well, it's, it is interesting that you bring up the energy angle to this, because when you look at the answers that we got from people in the province of Alberta, um, it was much more of a 50-50 proposition. Right. So um, there, uh, I, I would say, you know, there's obviously that element to uh, how people responded, concern about uh, uh, what the uh, potential future president would might do relative to pipelines. Uh, but also there's a slight tendency in, in Alberta and sometimes more than slight uh, to uh, uh, really have more of conservative views on, um, on a number of policies. So uh, the uh, level of appeal that a Donald Trump uh, as a candidate would have in Alberta would be higher than say would have in downtown Toronto. When you look at the polling state side, and, and I'm just going to run through some numbers here. So Trafalgar was pretty close, but ABC had Biden up 17 points. Fox had Biden up in Michigan by 12 points. CNN had Biden up in Pennsylvania by 10. Uh, it goes on and on. The Washington Post said 17 point loss for Trump. Now, we have heard from commentators on both the left and the right, and it's been interesting to me, that the media elite or the people that you hear on your television screens every night simply don't know their country anymore. Is that true? Well, I think that we can maybe overstate that a little bit. I think that, you know, they would know their country better if the tools that they had available to them were a little bit better. And uh, Explain. The, well, I, I think, you know, one of the things that, uh, uh, that we have to look at continually uh, is how the polls perform. Um, and in fact, I, I was really surprised during the course of particularly the last month of the, month of the election, the, the number of people who should have known better based on the polling evidence who were suggesting there was going to be a blowout. I mean, our central scenario in our polling was that it was going to be close. In fact, ours was a 50% probability that, uh, that Biden would win a close election, but we still gave a 30% possibility to Trump winning a close election. Nobody, we didn't see a blowout really. So I was surprised that that people thought that. You have perspective. And I, I, I think that's what we're saying. We sit here north of the border. Uh, we consume endless amounts of American news and American television, but we still have that distance. What we, I think we've seen in an unprecedented way in this campaign is the networks, uh, particularly in television, but newspapers too, New York Times, Washington Post, they all put on a jersey. Biden's our guy or Trump's our guy. And then the coverage seemed to flow from that. And obviously, so did the analysis. Uh, Yeah, I think so. Um, I can't really speak to uh, um, 
the question of objectivity in media. I mean, you have a lot more experience <laughs> dealing dealing with that than I do. Uh, but I will say that uh, the tools that they had available um, didn't help. Um, that they, I think that there was an over torquing of this idea that Joe Biden was going to be wing a win a big election uh, that could be justified based on some of the polling evidence they had. So you mean they had the numbers and they didn't read it or they weren't getting the numbers because people weren't talking to them honestly? I think they had the numbers and they were seeing it a bit differently than, and by the way, the interpretation I gave you of, of what was going on in terms of our polling in the United States, because mm -hmm. we were doing a lot of it for, for uh, various uh, outlets. Uh, the analysis I gave you was the one that came from Washington. It wasn't me looking back objectively as a Canadian seeing okay. it. I mean, it was pretty clear. Our analysis was that, um, you know, Trump's approval level was higher than people thought it was. Uh, our view that, uh, that this was going to be a really close election, the things were starting to tighten up as we got closer to the end. That was all, that was all out there. But when you look at a national poll in the United States, like our national poll, and you see Joe Biden is ahead by seven, people seem to think that what they're operating in is a system where that 7% applies everywhere. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't. Right. Uh, and and the, the 7% for Joe Biden was not really that significant a lead. And by the time we get to counting all of the ballots, just like we saw the last time, where the pollsters said that Hillary Clinton was going to win the popular vote, she did by about 3 million votes, we're going to see that, uh, you know, R7 is actually not that probably going to be that far off. It's probably going to be four, five, six, or seven. So, so he's going to win more votes, this uh, greater percentage of the votes this time than Hillary Clinton won. So again, why could you see that and others didn't? I do not, I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> I do okay. not know. Uh, but uh, I, will, I should also add to that, Senator, that um, there is a systematic problem in the polling in the United States picking up um, the power of Trump's support. And uh, we've, I've heard many, many, many theories of, about that. Uh, some of them all probably have some elements of it. But the, the funny thing is in the United States, it is the most over-polled country mm -hmm. in the world. They have more political pollsters doing campaign polling, more media pollsters doing polls about the campaign, all the brains, all the money, all the resources. And it was kind of like uh, I was describing it to somebody this morning, like, uh, you know, in the 1980s trying to defend against Wayne Gretzky. Everybody mm -hmm. knows Gretzky's going to get the puck. Everybody knows that Gretzky's going to score. How do you stop him? And with even with all of that foresight based on the previous election, and even with all of those resources and all of those brains, we still underestimated Trump's support. So a couple of things on that. So there's that larger question of whether um, the media, either advertently or inadvertently, wants its own um, personal objective to be achieved. They want the outcome they want to see. But it seems deeper because the whole democratic narrative over the last four years and obviously more intensely in, in the last year has been that Donald Trump is a one-off. He's a crazy person. He's an outlier. It was a fluke. It doesn't say anything about America, but clearly it does. That's all wrong. That's <laughs> all wrong. Donald Trump simply found what was there. And I described this in an article I wrote a while ago for the Global Mail about nationalism and populism. And, and really, all the kindling is all over the ground. It just takes somebody to decide to throw the match. And that's what he did. And that's who he is. So he, he decided to adopt a populist stance. 
um, and really focused on the thing that really drives and animates populism in most of the countries where it's a big issue, which is cultural change. Mm -hmm. And he decided to ride that hobby horse and create that division because he felt it would work for him. Uh, and as you can see in both 2016 and, and you saw in this last election, uh, the, it, it can potentially work, but it's a really marginal strategy. Yeah. And, the, and the question is, how big can it, can it get, uh, whether or not you can win? He was able to ride it in 2016 and had, you know, very uh, close races break his way. This time he tried to ride the same thing and had very close races break the other guy's way. But is it a powerful message? And does it take advantage of legitimate cleavages, real cleavages that exist in American society? Absolutely. Give us some of your insights on that, because if you look at the exit polls, you find that uh, many people uh, over the age of 30 were voting for Trump to the degree that you believe what people tell you in an exit poll. Uh, he had people of color, he had his Hispanics, he had blacks, he had uh, Latinos of all variations, he had women. Um, so again, it's that uh, the misconception or the misunderstanding, all those pieces of kindling, as you say, that are out there, he, he was speaking to people. Um, there's a debate about the coronavirus issue, how that broke for him, that, that Americans, by and large, like their individual and personal freedoms. We are a much more collective thinking country, and that he might have even won on that issue, even though Joe Biden was the one that was seen to be doing the right thing by wearing his mask and social distancing uh, at, every, at every turn. Yeah, I think if there was anything on the, um, and I was talking to our guys in Washington about this yesterday, uh, if, if there's anything that we would uh, like to go back and take a look at is how we interpret the coronavirus issue. So mm -hmm. what we know um, is if uh, people were thinking about the coronavirus uh, and who would do the better job of managing it, Joe Biden had like an eight to 10 point lead. And when you go out and you ask people, what's the most important issue facing the country, the most important issue in this election they would tell you it was the coronavirus. So mm -hmm. naturally, you know, that's what you would think, but it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Uh, the second biggest issue was, uh, um, you know, the economy. And if you ask people who would do the best job on dealing with the economy, it was Donald Trump by 10 points. How those two issues work together is more important and proved to be more important in the election than how they worked individually. And that was something I don't think people got. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, that they actually work together. So right. obviously, you're going to be doing more on that. Uh, all, ongoing. I mean, the, the, thing, <laughs> the thing about election campaign centers, I don't look at them as isolated events. I look at this as a continuous process. Correct. And you, you learn from one election to the next election to the next election to the next election to make uh, to, to do better assessments of public opinion. And that's what we're always trying to do in a world in which it's getting harder to do better assessments of, of public opinion. You don't want to over-rotate based on the results of a specific election, but you do want to learn from, uh, you know, interesting points. And, I, and that point about, for example, uh, the, uh, the interaction effect of economic concern and COVID concern mm -hmm. is not something that I'd really given a lot of consideration to before, but the American election makes me think about it a bit differently. And, and that's the thing. Be, so many people have said, you know, race was not the issue so much as class and culture 
And of course, again, those things all overlap as well. It was just interesting to read. There was a New York Times piece talking about um, the impact of Facebook, that most people are reading the New York Times or watching the CNN stories. What they're missing is where conservative, and I say that small c, conversations are going on. One of the conservative com uh, commentators in the U.S., had 56 million interactions on his Facebook page in the last 30 days, which is more than the main pages of ABC News, NBC News, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and NPR combined. And nobody was looking at it to get a feel for these other issues. Well, we were certainly getting it in our polling, and we were certainly, uh, we do a lot of work on social media too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my view of looking at election campaigns, I mean, when uh, I used to be, when you used to interview me when you were still <laughs> on television, I mean, there was really only one way to do a poll. I mean, it was a telephone poll, and you get an 80% response rate, and getting the answer wrong was like, uh, you know, falling out of a boat and missing the water. I mean, it was, it was, it was a pretty easy game. It's a much more complicated game today. And we're constantly scanning uh, what's going on in social media. But one of the canards that I've heard, and, you know, it gets a fair amount of uh, publicity, I think, in, in certain, uh, in certain uh, circles, is that, uh, you know, what you really need to do is focus on social media, and you need to measure what's going on there. Well, I saw the social media estimates that people came up about what the election, the, turn, the, the situation was going to be, and they were even more wildly outrageous for Joe Biden than they were for, uh, <laughs> than the polling was. So, uh, you know, you sit back and you say, yeah, nobody's really got the magical way of understanding what's going on. Uh, there's no single place that you need to go. Um, it's like, uh, you know, the people who uh, said, well, you forget about polling, go out there and, you know, wear out the shoe leather. Well, did, did, as reporters, did that really help that much? Do you feel that you were getting that type of reporting out of a lot of the, the media that was allegedly investing in that type of thing? I don't feel like Streeters are the most ridiculous thing that's ever or, been invented. Oh, you know, we're going to go hang out at the, <laughs> right. you know, it's the, it's the sort of the new journalism of Tom Wolf or, or right. whatever that we're, you know, going to go be participant and participant and observers. And that's going to, that's not going to be biased. Well, it's all kind of biased. So, <laughs> yes, of course. So the, the, the real question to me, and, and I think that you've asked it, is, you know, what are these forces that are going on, going on and how do we get an accurate read on them? And the, quest, the answer is it's very complicated and you have to be open, to up, open your mind to a lot of inputs. And I don't think that there's enough people doing that right now in my industry or in, in uh, academic world. Right. Or in elite circles, what I sometimes call Laurentian elites, well, I always yeah. call the Laurentian elite circles, um, and uh, in the media in places like the United States. So now uh, I, I have a couple of other questions that I sure. just want to touch on. So this, what, and this troubles me as somebody who's been in the media business and on the, in the political business, the whole sense, the concept of conditioning voters. So the degree to which... Um, whether it's big tech through these other uh, formats, Twitter, Facebook, the media that constantly discuss elections and all issues in the context of polls and who's in favor, um, and and the public reacting. If, I, if I'm watching polls that say Joe Biden is going to win uh, and it's going to be a blue wave and it's going to be a landslide and the kids are sick and I have to decide if I'm going to go out on voting day and I'm a Trump supporter, I'm going to say, well, why bother? Or if I'm a Biden supporter, I'm going to say, oh, well, he's, he's got it in the bag. I don't need to bother. So it impacts 
how voters actually act and think. In that, I, I've just picked out that one example, but the conditioning is much broader. Yeah, I, I, undeniable. But in this in this election, it's the highest turnout in an American presidential election mm-hmm. in a hundred years. It's sixty six percent. It's amazing. Uh, it, yeah, <laughs> and if it was meant to suppress somebody's vote, whose vote was that? Because. Joe Biden's getting more votes than any president in the history of the United States, if he wins. And Donald Trump is doing way better in terms of the number of votes he's getting in this campaign than he got the last time. So if it had a suppressing effect, uh, it didn't work. (laughs) So the the mindset is really more, uh, is altered for the the media elites or the Laurentian elites, as as you call them here in Canada, rather than just uh, the average voter. Well, I, I think you really hit on an important point because your your career spans a long period in journalism. And there was a long time in journalism, uh, um, probably since the uh, before the, the, the Second World War. Uh, actually, uh, before the Second World War, it was different, but after the Second World okay, War. Okay, I wasn't practicing yeah, but, journalism then, Daryl. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say. Okay. But, but <laughs> it, it, it certainly went into our period of time in which sure. journal, journalists felt like they were the objective source, that they were in touch with what the average person felt, that they were very, very representative of the average uh, Canadian or American. They did not understand even then how out Mm -hmm. of touch they were with the countries that they were uh, they were a part of, that they were supposed to be reporting on, that they were supposed to be reflecting. What's happened over the space of the last 30 years is with the rise of educational attainment combined with access to information through things like social media and the ability to articulate a point of view through social media, that's all broken down. And what's happened is the media has now basically been exposed as being representative of particular points of view. And you can say left, right, whatever you want to say on this, but they're not neutral. And this idea that you're pretending that you're neutral uh, and that you're representing, you know, what the average person thinks. Just read the, uh, you know, the columnists in the in the, the yeah. New York Times, or read them in the Globe and Mail. Do you hear that conversation at the local Tim Hortons when you go to uh, Gananoque? Yeah, absolutely not. And and there's this other whole issue, which is that opinion has supplanted news everywhere. I mean, everything we now listen to is really the opinion of the person presenting it. Well, the, the interesting thing on that is that there's some people who've decided to em- embrace that, mm-hmm. and you can talk about the destructive aspects of that, it o- but it only applies if you ever thought that the media was truly neutral. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, and, you know, Which maybe we in all some know inst- from the inside, it is not. <laughs> but so maybe that, and uh, I don't want to overstate this, uh, yeah. uh, uh, but uh, maybe that might be even a little bit more of an honest presentation of mm-hmm. Of, of, of what's going on. Whereas yep. in Canada, when we have, you know, here there's, uh, you know, that sort of uni- universal, unilateral voice of, of the reporting that comes out of Ottawa, in which you don't really hear a lot of diversity mm-hmm. in, terms of, in, in terms of opinion, where it still Less tries so- to present itself as right. neutral. Uh, you know, I, you know, I don't know about that. I'm, I, which, which one's worse? I think we can decide, yeah. but what the public's decided is eh, maybe I'm checking out, maybe I'm, uh, I'm going to construct my own view of, uh, of the world. Maybe I'm going to, uh, uh, maybe I'm going to use this education that I've now paid for to, uh, you know, articulate that point of view. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm empowered to be able to make up my own mind about some of these things. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of bad that goes along with that. 
but um, uh, you know, maybe there's some good that comes out of it too. I mean, this is the thing with technology that we've all become our own curators of the facts, right? Because we can we can go online and find what, it, you know, people used to have to watch the national news at 11 o'clock at night, you know, and there they would find the 10 most important things that happened in the world and in their country. And then they got a funny story at the end to make them feel better. And we could all talk about it at the water cooler the next day. That is not our world. We're all curating our own newscast. And, and by the way, who is to say those really were the 10 most important Of course stories. they weren't, right? <laughs> it was the most intent, uh, important 10 stories for the, the, the yeah. people who hung Worked out in, in the, the parliamentary press gallery, <laughs> uh, you know, hung exactly. out at the, 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 you know, the Fern Bar at the, at the Globe and Mail or at the CBC Broadcasting <laughs> Network in downtown Toronto or in, uh, or Agent Court at CTV or, yeah. or you know, Barbara Green at, uh, for, for global, global News. And they all come from the same place. They all have the same skills. They all kind of look at the world in the same way. Okay. Well, I, I, if you've got a minute, I want to ask you about money. We always have this discussion. Canadians tend to feel superior. Well, I'm not paying you to be on this, Senator. <laughs> and I'm assuming you're not paying me to And have I am this. not paying you either. So okay. we'll just put that aside for another day. Susan Collins, um, again, the polls were wildly wrong. Um, her competitor spent, uh, I think, $65 million. Lindsey Graham. His competitor, uh, more than a hundred million. These were two key Senate races in which the common wisdom was they were going down, and the competitor spent all this money. You look at the money that uh, Michael Bloomberg spelt, uh, spent trying to boost up Biden in Florida, Ohio, Texas, 150 million and change. Uh, these are huge numbers that didn't seem to have even the slightest impact. Yeah, and, and because the communications environment has changed in dramatic ways. And, you know, we were talking about social media before, but there's also this huge myth that dollars equals votes. And, you know, mm -hmm. Donald Trump showed back in 2016 when he was dramatically, dramatically overspent by, uh, or outspent by Hillary Clinton, that it, yep. it, it didn't matter. And, you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, a personal benefit that accrues to campaign consultants for suggesting <laughs> that you should be spending this kind of money. Um, there, uh, it, uh, for some, in, in some instances, it, it provides people with a feeling of insurance, you know, or some, the, the, some uh, 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 perspective that they, uh, that they're able to control what's going on. Um, and I, I think some of that stuff has to get thrown into question. We also have these amazing mythologies that we develop about, oh, the great data job that Barack Obama did, which explained why he was able to win as handily as he did. Well, if you change the candidate, I don't know if that's the case. Barack Obama won exactly. because of Barack Obama. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the things that I think that um, this latest election shows you is it's not about money. It's about making people, it's, it's about people feeling on their own that an election campaign matters. It's about them coming to that determination. And when they feel that there's big stakes, they show up. And they did. Right. All right. So uh, when you phone, are you calling landlines or cell? phones both but we're not okay. doing it we're, we tend polling tends not to get done on telephone as much as it used to so the idea well you know i don't answer your phone calls well i don't need you to answer my phone calls. yeah It'd be nice if you did but we don't make that many of them and are you using focus groups like what's your most um effective not right tool? now not right now 
We're doing yeah, well, online. you count with COVID, obviously, but I mean that notion of putting of of really drilling down with a representative, supposedly group of people. There is no most effective tool. We use all sorts That's of tools now. There's no one yeah. way of doing it. In the old days, there really was. I mean, initially it started off, you go face to face and knock on doors and house to house and that kind of thing. But now uh, we're using every methodology that you can. Yes, there are myriad tools out there, but actually understanding the people who live in your country will always be the most important one. Daryl Bricker, so great to have you with us today. want to encourage everybody to uh, pick up his latest book called Next. It's really got some important information that speaks very much to these kinds of topics about how we're uh, communicating with each other and how we need to be and understanding um, uh, how the world works today. So Daryl Bricker, CEO of Public Affairs at Ipsos. Thanks again. Thank you.